Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. I'm Karen Ryan, Director of the Human Rights Program at the Carter Center, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to tonight's Conversations at the Carter Center. This series gives us an opportunity to discuss Carter Center peace and health efforts and current world issues with our neighbors in the Atlanta area. We encourage you to learn more about upcoming conversations and also watch past events at cartercenter.org conversations. You can also subscribe to the Carter Center podcast uh, of this series on iTunes, very important. Many of you in this room are members of the Ambassador Circle and join more than 4,000 individuals who provide crucial support on an annual basis for the ongoing needs of the Carter Center and its programs. And some of you are members of the Legacy Circle and join more than 500 individuals who have made generous provisions for the Carter Center through their estate and financial planning, ensuring the future of our efforts. On behalf of all Carter Center staff, thank you for your ongoing partnership, for upholding the vision of President and Mrs. Carter, and for continuing to show what is possible when inspired to help other fellow human beings. For the next hour and a half, we will have the pleasure of listening to and asking questions of a panel of human rights leaders who will discuss how President-elect Barack Obama can restore the human rights record and the stature of the United States in the world. A series of recommendations were produced this week at the Carter Center by more than 30 human rights defenders and leaders from around the world and in partnership with the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. If you do not already have a, a card or haven't written a question, you've been given a card, you can write out a question and someone will pass through the aisles and collect them so that you can get your questions in at the panel. I'd like to just briefly introduce our guests. Um, on the far, your far left, my far right. So either way, it works. A recipient of, well, let me put it this way. Amnesty International shares a, a distinction with the Carter Center and, the, and President Carter, our middle guest here, right in the center. <laughs> <coughs> And that is the Nobel Peace Prize. And I was trying to figure out from Larry whether that was a personal distinction or an organizational distinction. Um, in the 1970s, Amnesty International received the Nobel Peace Prize for the, its uh, groundbreaking work in advancing human rights. And some years later, Jimmy Carter, much belatedly and much deservedly, received the Nobel Peace Prize. So two of these panelists have that in common. Our other two panelists also have something in common with them. They are champions of human rights and quite brave champions of human rights. Dr. Saad Ibrahim uh, founded the Ibn Khaldun Center in Cairo, Egypt. He's a recipient of numerous international human rights award and is a leading activist in Egypt and outspoken critic of the Mubarak regime. In the year 2000, Dr. Ibrahim was imprisoned and sentenced to seven years in prison on politically motivated charges, simply for asking for democracy and human rights, actually. 
He was released and cleared of all charges in 2003 with the outcry of the international community, and President Carter was part of that outcry. He has recently been under attack for calling on the US Congress to condition its military aid to Egypt on improvements in the country's human rights record and the freeing of a member of a political opposition party, Ayman Nur, who's still in prison. Dr. Ibrahim currently has an arrest warrant pending against him in Egypt and is unable to return to his own country. He is also a professor of sociology at the American University of Cairo and a founder of two nonprofit organizations. Ibn Khaldun Center for Development Studies in Cairo and the Arab Organization for Human Rights. And we are very honored that he is with us. This is the fifth year he has traveled to Atlanta to consult with us on human rights in Egypt. Dr. Seema Samar is the chairperson of the Afghan Independent Human Rights Commission and a special rapporteur on Sudan recipient of numerous international awards for her work on human rights and democracy. In 2001, Dr. Samar was appointed by the Karzai government to be the first female, of women, the first female head of women's affairs in the interim government of Afghanistan. A medical doctor by profession, after the Soviet invasion and loss of her husband, she fled to Pakistan, where she set up medical services for Afghan refugees and opened a first hospital for women. In 1989, Dr. Samar established Shuhada, a nonprofit organization committed to the reconstruction and development of Afghanistan with special emphasis on the empowerment of women and children. And we are delighted that we will be having both of them share with President Carter and with Larry Cox a conversation tonight on human rights. <clears throat> this week, we had with us, gathered in this very room, uh, other very prestigious and courageous individuals like those that you've been introduced to from Pakistan, from Colombia, from Nigeria, from Uganda, uh, from Zimbabwe. And they had a very um, urgent message for us. We are struggling. One of our, our dear guests, Hassan Shire, who's sitting in the audience there from Uganda. <laughs> he told us, we need help. Africa is bleeding. Zimbabwe uh, and the Congo are collapsing, and we need your help. So we need the United States of America to return to its position of tremendous leadership that for so many years uh, the United States enjoyed on the issue of human rights. In recent years, as we know, in the conduct of the war on terror, our government chose to depart radically from our previous commitments to human rights. And I'm going to ask each of our panelists to have a conversation together. So we're, it's not going to be speeches, we're going to converse together and you will be able to join the conversation and ask your questions. I'm going to ask President Carter to start us off and give us a flavor of what we had um, this week, the conversation that we had about restoring America's position in the world on human rights. 
Well, this year is a confluence of two major events in human rights history. One is it's the 60th anniversary in just a few days on the 10th of December of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that was passed in 1948 uh, almost unanimously under the leadership of Eleanor Roosevelt. And uh, we're reconfirming our commitment to that. The other momentous event is the end of the most disastrous human rights administration that the United States has ever seen that has been now in effect. That has been now in effect for almost eight years. And we have uh, changed from a wide reputation among many people as a champion of human rights to one of those who have betrayed the human rights. And if you go down the uh, principles expressed in the Universal Declaration, you'll find that our own country, of which I'm sure everyone here is proud, is embarrassed to be one of the most gross violators of the basic principles of human rights. And my hope is that when January 20th comes, that we'll have a clear indication that our country will no longer torture people, that our country will no longer abandon the international commitments that we've made to honor the convention uh, from Geneva of uh, protecting prisoners, that we'll no longer be incarcerating prisoners for six years without any allegation or charge of crimes against them depriving them of any access to legal counsel or to the normal processes of, uh, of law without the ability to have access to their own families. And these uh, crimes against uh, human rights have been exacerbated by our sending prisoners when we wanted to avoid embarrassment to countries that we know would torture them by extraordinary rendition, so-called. So these kind of things we believe will end when we get a new administration in Washington. And so the basic purpose of our conference this year, honoring defenders of human rights or heroes of human rights in other countries, is to collect uh, a list of uh, suggestions or, or, or recommendations to the new administration in Washington. What can we do in the next year and the succeeding years to restore America as a worldwide recognized champion of human rights. And there are a lot of things we need to do, and I'm sure that I and the other panelists tonight will outline some of those in very specific terms. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with many of them, but we'll be starting out, obviously, with the closing of Guantanamo and the basic announcement that our country will adhere to international conventions that protect human rights and for which we have in the past been champions. Those are the kind of things we'll do and I'm sure that by the time you uh, depart from here this evening, you'll have maybe a clearer idea of what the United States must do to restore our reputation as a champion of human rights, which we have learned a lot about from these people who are, come from troubled countries whose leaders have in the past been restrained from persecution by threatened intercession or example set by Washington. And in the last eight years, we've seen these oppressors now feel relieved of any obligation to follow the United States leadership because some of their perpetrations of crimes have been derived from the leadership established in Washington. So it's a profound change that's going to take place for which we are truly grateful and we feel confident that it will be accomplished. Thank you. Larry, <laughs> tell us 
how did you, t this week, in our conversation, we talked a lot about how, can, how could this happen in America? How could we, you know, we've learned, a lot of us who've, who've spent some time learning about the issue of, of torture, it's something that's so foreign, it's almost impossible to get your mind around the idea that our government would actually sanction and authorize torture. But the more you get into it, you see how deep it went. And yet, there was very little reaction on the part of the public. Amnesty International has for so long tried to build a movement around the idea of human rights and human dignity. How did this happen and how can we prevent it from happening? Again, assuming that we are successful in persuading our next president to take the steps we've recommended. Well, I, I'm very glad that, uh, that President Carter uh, phrased what he said in terms of what we will do and not just in terms of what President Obama will do because I think the key to success going forward will be uh, what we do a as a people. I think without tremendous support uh, by uh, the American people, uh, there's a danger that uh, President Obama, whatever his intentions, won't be able to do everything that needs to be done. I think the mountain of despair, as I call it, quoting from Martin Luther King Jr., that was created over the last eight years uh, is enormous, and, and uh, uh, it will not be very quickly, I think, uh, torn down or, or destroyed. Uh, and I think you're right. I think for me, uh, what has been extremely disturbing is not just what the U.S. government has been doing, uh, but that it happened on our watch. I mean, on the watch of all of us in this room. It happened on the watch of Amnesty International. We were unable to mobilize enough people uh, to turn it around. And one of the very humbling things about this weekend for me has been uh, to realize again uh, just how damaging that failure has been to the lives of real people around the world. That this is not something abstract or about principles. This is about suffering of people. We heard such moving stories, including from the two people who I'm honored to, to share this panel with tonight. Uh, and it made you realize that the failure to mobilize enough people uh, to rise up in outrage over what we, I think, took for granted. We took for granted that everybody understood that torture was wrong, that the American people would never accept torture. And we failed to see that you know, people in our country are no different than people in other countries, that when there is fear after 9-11, uh, that we are in just as great a danger of succumbing to the temptation to think uh, that the way to deal with it is to crack down, to be harsh, to abandon our principles. All the arguments that were made it must be said honestly, resonated with a large segment of the population. Uh, and so I think that this is, uh, as President Carter said, an enormous <coughs> opportunity that we're facing. But my worry is that uh, some people will feel that we've now ended uh, the struggle. And my view is that we just now have to begin the really hard struggle, that we have a greater need of a movement. And by a movement, I mean not just a US movement, but really a global movement than ever before uh, in order to make sure uh, that the new president has the support uh, to live up to his best instincts and his best intentions and his best hopes in, uh, for a different kind of a world. And I think that depends on us. So uh, the failure was a failure. I was uh, overestimating of the degree to which we had succeeded in terms of 
convincing people that torture was unthinkable, that uh, human rights was a key to security, not, a, not something that gets in the way of security, but the way to security. We overestimated our strength, I think. Mm -hmm. And now we have an opportunity right now to begin to rebuild that strength or to begin to actually expand it, to reach out to the American people. I think we need a dialogue with the new administration, but I, I think even more we need a dialogue with the American people about the damage that's been done. And we need, especially for the voices that we heard uh, this weekend to be heard by the American people, for them to understand the implications of what the United States did for people like them uh, in places like Egypt, in places like Afghanistan. And I think that's the challenge before us. If we can make those voices heard, and if we can mobilize people as never before, uh, then I think we really have a chance uh, to put America back on the right road and to go places where we haven't yet even gone. That's right. And, you know, just I am assuming that those of you who are here who came and who are attracted to the title of the, of the conference, you're somewhat familiar um, with the facts. But just in case there's someone in the audience that doesn't, uh, hasn't read all of the voluminous reports about what happened, we had a, a, a participant in our conference, um, a major general who was actually charged with writing the investigation or do, conducting an investigation and writing a report, an internal report, Pentagon report, on the abuses at Abu Ghraib. He was here with us. He spent two days with us talking about that. And this is a military general, a major general, uh, and was, he was completely overwhelmed by the work that human rights defenders do. And he was touched because he personally suffered consequences for telling the truth. And the truth that he uncovered, he said, you know, the photographs that you saw at, of Abu Ghraib were just a thumbnail, a tip of the iceberg of what happened. Uh, and these images were broadcast across the world with the stamp, you know, the American flag stamped on that. <coughs> and, the, and so I think it's very, very important for us to think about the impact of that on our ability to succeed in whatever it is we set out for ourselves as a nation. Uh, so, so there is damage, and it's not as simple as issuing an executive order. There, one of the recommendations that our group has been rallying around is the idea that President Obama should issue, in his, even in his inaugural address, uh, say that he will issue an executive order and ensure that no person is ever tortured in the custody of anyone who represents the United States, whether military or privately paid. And that will be, of course, a big advantage. Now, the interesting thing about the executive order, it, it only calls to enforce existing law. It's not an a, a executive order to ban torture, because actually, we have the laws that ban torture. Our laws already prohibit torture. So uh, we have, yes, we have to reset the entire culture, but there's tremendous damage that's been done. And we have to be a part of the solution. Many groups have been involved in talking to some of the former detainees. And the stories you will start hearing, uh, some of the stories are being written about. And I encourage you to seek them out, because these uh, are, are people that we are responsible for the treatment. And that will be part of, of overcoming this. Um, so I wanted to ask Saad, 
you know, five years ago when you came here, you came here right after you were released from prison. And he told us, you know, at that time when I went into prison, I was athletic, I was an athlete, I was very fit. And when I came out, I had uh, some much more difficulty walking because of torture, because of, of how I was treated in prison. And since then, for the last five years, we have stayed very much in contact with Saad and tried to see how, how can Egypt be pushed along um, and here he is in exile. Saad, how, how has this impacted? How has this, what we've described here, had an impact on your effort, the efforts of you and your colleagues in the human rights movement of Egypt to fight for human rights and, and struggle for human rights and democracy in Egypt? Well, <clears throat> thank you for this opportunity and thank you, President Carter, for bringing us here and for meeting this very responsive American audience. And let me just preface my comment on this by saying having gone to school in America in the 60s, I learned the art of activism. I learned not to be complacent. And I think what Larry said, what the president said, is here is a great people, great tradition for freedom, for human rights. But if you are complacent, just depending or relying on that heritage without guarding it every day, never take it for granted. That's what I learned, that you have to be actively involved. You have to be actively engaged. You have to guard the valuable things you have. And it pained me as a student here in the 60s, learning so many of the values, the great values of this American people, that few years later, America comes from the mountain down to the deep abyss of neglect and of shame, with the torture, with the tales that we heard about from Guantanamo to Abu Ghraib, to the refusal to sign human rights, international human rights accord. So when the president mentioned Eleanor Roosevelt in 1948, America was champion number one in leading the world to a new era of respecting human rights. The Universal Declaration, 1948. Eleanor Roosevelt associated with it. Jumping, going down 2008, America refuses to sign four very important accords, international accords. The rights for development, the rights of the child. Why would America refuse to sign an international accord for the rights of the child? It just pains me, as somebody who knows how good this country is, to see its leadership refusing to sign these four important accords, the rights of the child, the right to development, the right to food. Here is the most generous people I have known. Why would its leadership refuse to sign an international covenant for the rights of everybody in the world to food? And then the environment, Kyoto. Why would the United States refuse 
I mean, the administration reviewers to sign that accord. And therefore, every time I come here, I, my faith in America is renewed. But then, as I see the behavior of official America, I am discouraged. I am saddened. And therefore, I call on this audience to take an active role, to be, an act, to be active participants in helping. I think President-elect Obama has right instincts. And I think Larry and President Carter touched on that very, very eloquently. And I cannot add to them. But again, if we just rely on his goodwill and his intention, we may be in for a big disappointment. We have to be vigilant. We have to show him the kind of support and backing and the kind of monitoring. Accountability is very important. Because I think many of these violations that we talked about came about as a result of politics of fear. Using 9-11, which was horrific, horrific. The whole world was sympathetic with America. But that tragic event was used as a pretext to undermine some of the very dear values that this country stood for. I'm always reminded of one of the founding fathers, who, Benjamin Franklin, who once was witnessing a discourse similar to ours tonight, in which, again, liberty was to be sacrificed for security. And he said, any people who would sacrifice liberty for security deserve neither. And I take that as my mantra. And I say, yes, America can do both. America is a great country, great society, and that can afford to do that. And we have seen other countries with probably less heritage than yours. Take the country like Spain. They had a tragic event in the Madrid bombing of their rail road station three years after 9-11, but they never passed the kind of dr draconian measures that, that were passed in this country. They never sacrificed any of the basic values. Here is a new democracy, not an old democracy like America, a new democracy that became democratic only in 1975. 1975, that's 150 years after America enjoyed you know, its democracy. And yet, the rulers of Spain were so committed to liberty and democracy that they would not. That is the kind of thing that every time I come here and meet my colleagues from around the world, I see President Carter, I get energized, I get renew my enthusiasm and my faith to keep fighting. But I say to any American audience, please use your liberty, use your freedom to help us obtain and protect ours. That is really the thought I wanted to share very early on in this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Let me add one point. Yes, 
one of the things that I worked on when I was president was the convention on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women. The United States has still not ratified that convention. We've still not ratified the International Covenant on Economic and Social and Cultural Rights. The United States is the only nation on earth that has voted down the covenant on the rights of a child because we insist on the right to execute children. We're the only nation on earth that refused to ratify the covenant on the rights of people to economic development and on the rights to food. So I think it's hard for us to put into perspective how other nations look upon the United States. Now, we, we not only have dropped from the top level of protecting human rights of all kinds, but in many ways, we are at the better, very bottom. In all those uh, covenants that I mentioned to you, more than 175 other nations have ratified them. We're the only country that hasn't. So we hope that those things will change um, beginning next year. And we do, I think the, the group assembled this week did feel optimism uh, that President Obama and Vice President Joe Biden have the right instincts, as you said, Saad. But governing in, in the United States is very difficult. Nobody knows that better than the man on the stage. And the pressures. Uh, so Larry's point, I think, is extremely important that and during the, the 1990s, during the Clinton administration, when we used to, you know, we would go to the White House or to the State Department and, and ask them to, to push the Women's Convention for ratification. And they would say, you know, we have, we have nobody pushing us for this. There's no constituency for this. Go, go get a constituency and we'll talk about it. Um, so that's the reality. We have to do that. Um, you know, and... and you know, it, in this time, we had last week the tragic events in Mumbai. We are, it's a confusing time because we actually do have a, the, a very important threat of extremism that is on the minds of people. And often there's this conversation about how do you balance security and rights. Mm -hmm. uh, candidate Obama said, this is a false choice. So we've got to hold them to it. And one of the discussions that we had this week, and I think it's a very practical question, because you know, the question now comes, yes, close Guantanamo. What do you do with the people there who, have, uh, who you can't try, who you can't release, et cetera? Um, and Harold Coe, who is the former Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights and now the Dean of Yale Law School, has, uh, I, I encourage you to seek out his his uh, writings on this subject, because he's spoken very eloquently about this, about how our courts have actually worked very well to try people who are accused of terrorism. We have to have faith in our system. And that question was put to Hina Jalani this week of Pakistan, who's a lawyer in Pakistan. Somebody asked her, so what do we do? How are you dealing with terrorists in Pakistan? This is everybody, it's on everybody's mind. How do you deal with them if you don't just lock people up and out of fear? And she said, it's actually very easy. Put them on trial. 
They can, if you expose their crimes in a court of law, in a legitimate forum like a court of law, you will discredit them in the eyes of society. That's the way to do it. And it was a brilliantly simple solution. Um, and uh, of course, I haven't allowed our guest, Seema Samar, to talk. Afghanistan also is in uh, uh, the conversation now about this confluence of, of, of interests and, and, and important issues that we must, I don't want to use the word balance because that never works, deal with simultaneously. Seema, how, tell us how you and your colleagues in Afghanistan are grappling with these questions. How, what is the way forward for us together to build democracy, human rights, and security? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for uh, President Carter and the Carter Center to bring us to um, the center in order to raise our voice. Um, I think I have to mention that uh, Afghanistan is the main cause, unfortunately, of uh, the problem, or maybe uh, a ring that uh, waken everybody in the world that this is a problem. And even on, on every attacks, when you uh, hear about the attacks in Madrid or in, in, in London or in, in New York, of course those people who committed that kind of a crime or a terrorist attack has been trained in Afghanistan. None of them has been Afghan. But the Afghan people, including me as, uh, as an Afghan citizen, we are the victims. We are sacrificing for the act of the others. So this point I wanted to mention, that this is unfortunately the situation for us. I, I can tell you a sim simple example. When I come to this country, when they see my passport, although I have a diplomatic passport and a two visa, and then they look at my passport and I have to be searched twice because I'm an Afghan. And to convince the people that all the Afghans are not terrorists, even the one who committed those kind of crime, you don't find any Afghan on the list. Neither in the bomb in the London, in the train station, not in the Madrid, not in Bombay, not in, in, in Pentagon and in, in Trade Center in New York. So we, we do understand what does it mean, security and liberty, and also which one we have to sacrifice. And I have to say that we think, and we fight for this every day, because we have a lot of uh, Afghans in Guantanamo we don't have access. We have people in Bagram, uh, Afghans and non-Afghans in Bagram. We, as a Human Rights Commission, we have the mandate to have access to those. And we do not have access. And the people who come out from Bagram, they, have, they make a lot of allegations that it was torture and all these things. We gone const const constantly to the uh, American ambassadors and also to the uh, military for, um, authorities that we should have access because lack of transparency itself caused a lot of suspicion. Why it's not transparent to the uh, American public? Why it's not transparent to us? And we do have the mandate. We have to, to, to have access in order to 
you know, to reduce the gap, to, re to reduce the misunderstanding between the Afghan public and the uh, American presence in Afghanistan. So this is not working, unfortunately, and we hope that it will, it will uh, come in the future, in near future, although as we all understand that it's not easy, it's a mass in the world, it's not easy for one person or uh, even an administration to, to pull out uh, the lake from all the masses that it's, it's all over the world, not only in Afghanistan and Iraq, but we are the, the, main, uh, the main problem. But I think for everything, to solve the problem, to keep the standard, the principles of human rights, rights to justice, right to due process. Yes, they are crazy people, they are mad people, they are committing a lot of crimes, but they do have the right to, to, uh, to have access to justice. They do have the right to have uh, due process on their cases. So these are the issues that we have to push and we, the people who believe on these principles and standards have to come together and unite it and fight for these things. And I think the culture of impunity has to be stopped. And every, every person has to be accountable for their action. If somebody from my family commit a crime, I'm not, I, I should not be sacrificed for his crime. If somebody is committing crime in this country, I mean, you have, uh, you've seen that some, some young uh, boy get crazy and, and take a gun and kill the class fellows. So, but he's responsible for, the, for his act. It doesn't mean that all of his class fellow is responsible. So, in general, I would say that the culture of impunity has to stop all over the world, not only in Afghanistan, not only in Iraq, not only in Egypt, everywhere. And everybody has to be responsible for their action has to be accountable for the action. If we push for this, we can achieve. And then, of course, United States, who claim, who came, I mean, you all remember that the first thing was to protect human rights in Afghanistan and women's rights in Afghanistan. Did we achieve? No. The situation in Afghanistan getting worse and worse, and the insecurity is more, uh, more increasing every day. So a question for you. There's a debate about American presence in Afghanistan. What is your opinion about this? Do, do, and the NATO presence, the international presence? Yes. Well, I think there's no doubt that the, mili uh, the military pressure has to be kept. Because why everybody came to Afghanistan? If they really achieve the objective, they can leave. If they really uh, finish the job or done the job, they can leave. Otherwise, they have to be there, but there's no military solution to the problem in Afghanistan. It has to be more comprehensive. It has, has to be more di uh, multi-dimension because we cannot really achieve security without justice, but we cannot achieve peace without justice. So it should be uh, in, in different, uh, a very comprehensive strategy. And unless we, try to reduce poverty in Afghanistan and also in the region, not only in Afghanistan, unless we really uh, try to convince and provide basic social services to the public, and more importantly, human security to the public, 
Human security doesn't mean that we don't have bombing today, we have security. No. The people do not have food. The people do not have access to justice. The people do not have access to clean water. The people do not have access to all the education, quality education. I mean, we are not sure if my daughter is going to school or she's coming back home. This is human security. The people do, are not sure that if they have lunch today, can they provide dinner for their children? These are very important. And the people in Afghanistan would like to have human security, would like to see changes on their life. So it's incomplete job if they leave. They have to stay with us, but not necessarily only with military means, not necessarily only to increase the number of the troops. But because we have um, election next year, and I think one of the solution would be to have really a fair and free election in the country. And that cannot be done without having security for the people. Did you want to say something? Did you raise your hand? No. Oh. You know, you mentioned the term accountability. Um, part of our challenge, I think, is that is being accountable for our actions. As you said, we have to be accountable for our actions. And as Americans, uh, I think, for me personally, I take, ooh, excuse me, I take it personally as I am an American, I'm a taxpayer, I love my country. I want for our moral footprint in the world uh, uh, to be a good one. <laughs> and so, you know, part of what we discussed this week is what should the next president do to restore our position, both by taking these kinds of actions, close Guantanamo, forward-looking actions. Larry, do you, can you talk to us about what you think? How should we proceed with this idea of accounting? Um, and one, I'll just be slightly controversial here because Hina and Seema challenged us this week to go back a little bit beyond the last eight years because we, we can talk very clearly yeah. about what is obvious for the last yeah. eight, eight years. But we all know, if you watch Charlie Wilson's War, entertaining movie, but uh, Hina reminded us, you know, Charlie Wilson was no hero for us in Pakistan. That the support for the, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan was the beginning of a slide. Now you could ask, well, maybe if we had at least stayed in Afghanistan afterwards and provided the support that we needed to build a society, uh, that it could have mitigated the impact mm -hmm. of that earlier support for the Mujahideen. Uh, but these are, these are impact, this is impact. And we have to, as Americans, I think, examine those impacts that we have. And we talked a little bit about that this week. Larry, how should uh, President Obama approach the issue of looking backwards um, without getting into uh, the problem of a witch hunt that we definitely want to avoid, a partisan witch hunt. How, how should we do that? Well, I think this is a really key point and, and probably the hardest of the number of steps that we outlined. Uh, Amnesty International right now has a campaign that's going on, uh, which we, before this conference, we called the 100-day campaign. Uh, after I heard President Carter speak, I think we may call it now the 10-minute campaign because he was explaining that there are things that could be done in the first 10 minutes that would make a huge difference. And I think that's true. One is to 
announce that you're going to shut down Guantanamo and shut it down completely. The second is to issue an executive order on torture that says precisely that no agency, no agency of the United States government will ever use torture again or cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment. Again, that's also important. But the third one is to show how serious we are. And to me, it's not a question of looking backwards. It's really a question of looking forward. And I think that's how it has to be phrased. If we are really serious about moving in a different direction, and we are really serious about giving to the world an example that the United States does not hold itself separate from the rest of the world. We have preached to the world for a long time uh, that it's important to hold people accountable, that it's important to uh, find out the truth of massive human rights violations when they occur and not to be afraid that this is an important step in healing a society. For us to have put the whole world through what we have put the whole world through uh, and then not to demonstrate that we will follow our own advice and hold ourselves accountable for the world uh, would be a sign that we are not serious, really, that we are interested in symbolic acts that will help us, but we're not really serious at getting down uh, to the depth of, of what happened. Uh, and I think it's true that we have to be willing to look beyond just the last eight years. We have to ask ourselves, how is it uh, that we went down this road uh, in the first place? Why were there no safeguards that protected us from the temptation to do this? What was the thinking uh, that I believe uh, happened ever before 9-11 when people came into the White House about expanding executive power so that 9-11 became the vehicle by which uh, an idea that had already existed before could be, could be carried out. Uh, and I, I think that this will require uh, real public support because I think there will be a lot of voices that we already are hearing them. Um, there was an article in the Washington Post just a couple of days ago saying, no, no, don't do this. Uh, don't, don't look back. Let's just forget it. You know, let bygones be bygones. Okay, you know, we tortured a few people. We disappeared a few people. Come on, you know. Uh, now let's just go forward. Let's forget it. And I think that it will take the American people saying, we want to know. We have a right to know what was done in our name. We have a right to know everything that was done in our name and why it was done, and what the thinking was, and how can we come up going forward with safeguards that will protect us. So there are various models. I think the one that we talked about the most, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, mm -hmm. uh, President Carter and the others, was the idea of a, con uh, of a commission that would be a, uh, a congressionally set up commission that would have subpoena power uh, that could really look at uh, the, uh, uh, get the truth of what happened. Um, and make recommendations of how we go forward. Uh, and give the whole world the idea uh, that the United States recognizes that uh, uh, we really uh, have done harm not only to ourselves, uh, but to everyone, and that we have an obligation, uh, first of all, to the American public, and secondly, to the world, uh, to say that we are willing to hold ourselves accountable for what we did and to learn from it, and to go forward in a different direction. But I think that will require really a mobilization of people uh, saying, we want to know the truth. And then we can reconcile. Thank you. President Carter. Well, I think <clears throat> there are some very specific things also that a president can do in addition to closing Guantanamo in the current that won't, won't torture prisoners anymore. And those are extremely important, and that can be done by executive order, but it's not going to be easy to fulfill, as Karen has already pointed out. But I think that um, 
one of the things that we must do in the future is for the president to appoint a, a single person to serve somewhere in the top echelons of government, possibly in the State Department, that will be known as the United States Human Rights Representative or Ambassador or Spokesperson. So every human rights organization in the United States, including Amnesty International, the Carter Center, and others, will know where to go to focus our own collective support and uh, information and advice on that person. And so that people from around the world, if they have a human rights problem, instead of trying to get an appointment with the president, can come to that person and say, we have a real serious problem in Zimbabwe or in the Democratic Republic of Congo or in Burma, and this is a specific thing that you can do. That's very important. And that person will have to be um, known as having a direct access to the President of the United States. The second thing that the President needs to do is to understand that there are three levels of uh, protection for human rights in the world. One of them, I would say, at the lowest level is individual defenders, like we have on the stage with us tonight, heroes, I call them. And the other ones are the human rights organizations that are not governmental. And there are a lot of them. And uh, so that's a, a very important uh, level of penetration and analysis and, and re revelation of uh, gross human rights uh, crimes that others might not uh, detect. This second level, obviously, is the national level. And I would say that the president, in that respect, can quit supporting without question our allies and friends who are overtly violating human rights and overtly violating other principles on which the United States rests our moral values, democracy, freedom, and so forth. That's the second level. The third level is to support the United Nations for a change. <laughs> the United Nations is uh, the conglomeration of the hopes and dreams of many small countries and people around the world who don't have the power and the political influence and the military strength that the United States has. And, and we need to take advantage of the opportunities within the United Nations that exist, but which have been condemned and derogated and abandoned recently by the United States of America. And, and this is very important. There's a United Nations High Commission on Human Rights that was here and served as my co-chairperson with, with, this, uh, with this conference this year. And that's been the case for the last five years as well. And, and the United States needs to give that person strong support. The present one uh, is, a, is a, a product of the struggle in South America to end apartheid. South Africa. And to bring justice and freedom to the people of South Africa. And, and she needs our full support. Instead of having uh, the United States government condemn her and derogate her and, and assign her to a, a hopeless case. And the other thing is that the, the new uh, Human Rights Council in Geneva, we don't even send an observer there. And, and this is a collection of what, 47 members, is that right? 47, right. 47 members from around the world who collect together, almost now on a sustained basis, they used to meet twice a year. The new council meets pretty regularly and almost continuously. The United States has condemned that whole organization. And although we have an observer chair, nobody's ever in it. And the United States has withdrawn its participation. We don't even seek a membership on 
the council that's responsible for protecting human rights around the world. And who seeks memberships most avidly? It's the countries that are violating human rights. That's the most important single thing they want from the United Nations is a seat on the council so they can protect themselves from investigation and from condemnation. So the United States can immediately seek membership. And we were assured by leaders from that organization today that if the United States should seek membership, we would be elected overwhelmingly because the rest of the members want the United States to be there playing a role. So there's some very tangible things that we can do within the State Department or the White House, I, I prefer the State Department, and, and supporting the other existing organizations around the world that in the past have had United States leadership and now don't have it. Thank you. Well, we've had a full and complete conversation here at this end, and now I'm going to open it up to the audience. I have some excellent questions I've been looking through here um, I'd like to, to start with. And I guess this is a softball to you, Larry. What can we do as US citizens so that government officials are held accountable as citizens? What do we do? <coughs> Join Amnesty. <laughs> That's a softball. Yeah. <laughs> you answer. <laughs> well, we can act like citizens, uh, I think, is the answer. I mean, I think that uh, you know, we have to uh, begin uh, to make our voices heard to our representatives. We have to uh, come up with very, and uh, today, this uh, last two days, we've come up with very concrete proposals for people to take and go to their representatives and say, this is what we want, this is what we need, this is what we demand. Um, we hear uh, all the time, um, as you were discussing with, with CEDAW, uh, the complaint that, uh, well, we would take interest in this issue, but we never hear from, you know, the American people. If we ban a gun or we propose to, uh, you know, ban a gun, we hear, we get, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of letters uh, from the, mobilized by the NRA, but if we want to talk about some of these other issues, we don't hear. I think that's exactly what has to change. Uh, we need right now to, uh, and it, you know, there are lots of organizations that one can join, um, as President Carter mentioned, that are, uh, uh, you know, trying to do this. And, uh, you know, Amnesty's one, but there are a lot of others. It's, there's no reason for people not uh, to be involved in an effort uh, to make their voices heard uh, on these key human rights issues and to demonstrate uh, one of the things that, that's most disturbing to me over the last eight years. I mean, you've had a, an administration, I think, just to follow up on what President Carter said, that for the last eight years has gone out of its way uh, to denigrate institutions that had been built up over a long period of time. The United Nations is one to say this is a useless organization or if not an evil organization. We should just stay away from it. Um, uh, to denigrate our justice system. The reason people are so, uh, Guantanamo is impossible to solve is because we've been hearing for eight years uh, that, uh, you know, our justice system can't handle this, even though for hundreds of years it, it dealt with all kinds of crises and handled it well. Uh, suddenly, you know, the American people have been educated that, no, no, it can't work, it can't work. Our own justice system, in the case of Hurricane Katrina, we heard about how, well, you know, again, you know, our institutions can't cope with a natural disaster. You know, we, we've been convincing the American people of our incompetence and our inability to deal with. Uh, so I think what, and one of my worries is that human rights has been one of the victims of this, that human rights has been marginalized, taken out. One of the things that President Carter did, which was, I think you can't overstate the importance of it, is that he said this, human rights is central 
to who we are as Americans. It's central to U.S. foreign policy. It's central to what we do. Um, you know, the Bush administration has made human rights something which, uh, the way they saw it, represented a small special interest, as if the rights of the human race are a special interest. You know, maybe we'll take into account, but there are other special, you know, there are other special interests, you know, like uh, Halliburton or some other special interest. <laughs> we got to balance, you know, human rights with Halliburton. I don't know, you know, they're just one of these, you know. We have to begin to convince people that human rights is about them. It's about every human being yeah. on the planet. Uh, it's not a special interest. It should be the core interest. Uh, and I think uh, we've got to get people involved in, in making their voices heard and believing uh, that their voices can make a difference. And I just, again, I just wish people had heard more and, uh, from Saad and, and Seema because, and the others who were there, because it, there are things happening where if we could mobilize more voices, uh, suffering would stop. And, and it's going on because we haven't yet convinced people that they can make it. We've had a government convincing people you can't make a difference for eight years. Now we've got to get convincing people, no, you can make a difference. And one of the reasons people were so, I'm sorry to go on, but one of the reasons people were so excited about Obama, I think, is not just Obama. It was the crowds they saw behind Obama. Yeah. It was the hundreds of thousands of people that were coming out. I saw pictures in this city of people lined up to vote like I'd never seen in my lifetime. And the whole world saw that. So it wasn't just Obama. It was the American people being mobilized, moving, getting involved again, caring, may, feeling that they could make a difference. You know, yes, we can. Yes, we can. That was the mantra. So I think if we can keep that up and build on it, uh, we'll make a, uh, we can once again demonstrate that we can change the world. Right on. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I have a question for you, Saad. Um, what can American citizens do to help support the human rights movement in Egypt and have the release, have uh, Ayman Nur released from prison? <coughs> Let me just give the audience a little bit of background to answer this question. We have had a president ruling Egypt by the name of Hosni Mubarak. He succeeded the late President Sadat. He has been in power for 28 years. He is the third longest ruler of Egypt in 6,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> when you have somebody who has stayed in power for that long, 28 years, after Ramses II, <laughs> As the saying goes, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And that's exactly what happened with our regime. And that regime, part of the corruption and <coughs> eroding legitimacy, is to crack down on dissent. And one of the outstanding human rights figures is a colleague of mine, another fellow dissident by the name of Ayman Noor, who dared to challenge President Mubarak to call for a multi-candidacy presidential election until Ayman Noor stood up and said, you know, 
I am willing to challenge Mubarak. If he thinks he's popular, let him open the process and let me run against him. Well, he did. Under pressure, Mubarak made that concession, opened the process, allowed some candidates to run against him, and the most important one was Ayman Nur. So he ran against him, he got 20% of the vote, but he also got five years in prison. So if you can imagine, in your system, <laughs> a, an elected president who jails, put in jail, in prison, everybody else who ran against him. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. So what do we do? We are having a rally in Washington next week in solidarity with Ayman Noor, this 45 years old dissident, very brave man, and who dared to challenge Mubarak, and he's paying for it by being behind bars. Now we are standing in solidarity with him. I call on each one of you, if you have the inclination, the time, to join by at least a letter to your congressman, to your senator, uh, to the new president, to speak out and to demand the release of Ayman Noor. The United States has a leverage, has many cards, some material and some moral. And of course, the moral card was discarded willfully by the present administration. However, the material card is still there. And that is America gives the Mubarak regime $2 billion every year in economic aid. That is, by Egyptian standard, by third world standard, is a huge amount. And part of it is military aid, part of it is civilian aid. I think the United States should use imaginative conditionality to get prisoners of conscience out of prison. And this is a duty, this is an obligation, this is something that could be done. And to hold Mubarak accountable to his own promises. Because in that election, in which this young dissident dared to challenge him, he made a lot of promises to the Egyptian people. He promised the Egyptian people an independent judiciary. He promised the Egyptian people an independent media. He promised the electorate also free and fair election, and also a new law for freedom of association. People can start their NGOs, their civil society organizations. None of these promises made in the year 2005 has been fulfilled. And therefore, the United States can hold him accountable to his own word and to be for change on the side of the Egyptian people instead of remaining on the side of despotism and dictatorship. I think there's something that could be done. It should be done. Saad, you, you, yes, go ahead. Uh, Saad, you were the beneficiary of that kind of pressure. You yes. were in self were in, in prison. Yes. Why, I know that Secretary Rice has raised the Ayman Noor case with Mubarak, President Mubarak. Why is, it, why is that not working at this point? Well, because the uh, 
Egyptian regime has become very skillful in outmaneuvering administrations in democratic countries. Somebody who has been in power for 28 years, how many American presidents has he outworn and outlived? Starting with President no. Carter, Sadat all the way. Sadat was there when I was there. Yeah, see? But Mubarak so, came later. Right. All right. Just so that. Just it came that on the tail end. Yeah. All right. So he has learned the art of telling every democratic country that puts pressure, he said, yeah, sure, we will do it. It would just take time. Just give us four or five years <laughs> to get out. Well, in four or five years, an American president or a British prime minister or a French or a German is out of office. And the new one comes. And he does the same thing. This is one. So outmaneuvering, outplaying, outflanking all of this pressure by foreign powers or by democracies who are helping him. But the second thing is a lack of clear vision on the side of American administration. For example, President Bush made a big, a big thing about a freedom agenda back in 2004. Well, he got everybody excited about the freedom agenda. He did the talk, but very quickly he failed to walk the walk. And here is something that I think everybody should be aware of. When you encourage democracy, when you institute democracy, you should be willing to accept the outcome, even if you don't like it. And what happened is that in late 2005, early 2006, once some of the rulers were convinced to open up the system, some Islamists ran for office, and some of them won. Once the Islamists won, there was a shelling effect in Western capitals, and the dictator said, see, you pressured us to open up the system. When we opened up the system, Islamists have come or are coming to power. Well, again, Islamophobia that resulted from 9-11 was still in effect. And with the dictators in our part of the world amplifying the danger of Islamists, rightly or wrongly, have made Western leaders shrink, afraid. And that's why they stopped putting pressure for the freedom agenda. I say, as a secularist, as somebody who will probably, as I said, an American, an American educated, I'm against the Islamists, 180 degrees, I fought against them, but I would rather have a democratic process. Whoever it brings, I will accept. And I said that, I have said that publicly. I may be the first victim of an Islamic dominated government. However, I would rather do that and fight my fight on my own territory against anyone who tampers with democracy and freedom, as I am doing with this 28-year dictator, <laughs> the longest ruler. 
have a question for you, Seema. How are the conflicts in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and now Kashmir and India interconnected? And how are they related to human rights? Um, well, I think the um, Afghan case is not an isolated case. It's, it's a regional, and I have to say it's a global because it's affected everybody in this world. Um, after the invasion of the Russian, uh, I think we all know that Ziaulaq became in power in Pakistan and he promoted really Islamization. And we had Khomeini, uh, the Islamic Revolution in Iran. So the whole region became and promote extremist and fundamentalist. Because uh, I <coughs> gone to school, a co-education school, in 60s and 70s. And we had a lot of uh, Peace Corps teachers in our school on that time. And in that city, there's no possibility for the girls now to go to school. <coughs> so it was, we didn't knew that the, this kind of Islam, Islamic belief is existing the way they, the extremists support it. Pakistan became a, a training center for the Afghan Mujahideen. And it became a transit country for everybody to come through Pakistan and go to Afghanistan in order to fight. So we had every Arab also, including Egyptian, Sudanese, Somalis, uh, <coughs> Yemenis, everybody, including this famous bin Laden, coming through Pakistan and, and going to Afghanistan. And then the US government and the Britain, mainly with Saudi Arabia, they supported the religious school, the madrasas, and they pick up the Afghan children and Pakistani children to train them like the, we have the Taliban now. So because of the, the problem uh, in Kashmir between India and Pakistan, and the majority of Kashmiris is also Muslim, so there was possibility to train the, the people from Kashmir also. So there was, a, Afghanistan was a playground and everybody wanted to learn jihad over there. I have to say that some people who are leading the Janjaweed militia in Sudan has been trained in Afghanistan. So we become actually the, the, the place that, or a, a training field for everybody. So it's really interconnected. Now we have, after the fall of the Taliban, everybody knew in 1994 when Taliban became in power that it was Pakistan beside it. And the Pakistani interior minister, Nasrullah Babur, became a spokesperson of Taliban. I think everybody remember after 9-11, even President Musharraf was saying that we have to include moderate Taliban. For me, as an Afghan, suffering under Taliban and still victims of their uh, activities in Afghanistan, we don't know who's moderate Taliban and who's extremist Taliban. They, they become, they all graduate from the same madrasas. And most of them hardly is able to read and write. But they were brainwashed and they were kept, kept there in order to be uh, people like to be able to kill themselves and so uh, take all these action, suicide activities. 
because they are told that you will go directly to heaven and the people you kill is also going directly to heaven. So the, the, the reason was mainly the poverty and the, 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 the Russian invasion, unfortunately, and, the, and support by these countries for that kind of fundamentalist in order to continue the war against the Russian. So it's not only the eight years of administration of President Bush. It's go up long ago, during Reagan and afterward even, uh, that the, this kind of policy continued. So now, the same policy as Saad said in Egypt, Musharraf played. They were telling the administration here, if you pressurize us, the Islamists will take over. In the previous election in Pakistan, uh, practically the, um, the one before uh, this one, some of the fundamentalists really took power in the, in the two provinces in Pakistan, in Peshawar, and also in Quetta. Practically, they, were, they took, I mean, they are the, the guardian of the Taliban uh, themselves. So when the, the Taliban fall in Afghanistan, all of them moved to Pakistan. Everybody knew that they moved in Pakistan, and they, it was clear where they are. How cannot uh, the people see it? But it was not enough pressure on Pakistan, and they thought that, okay, Taliban is finished. Now they lost the, um, they took the power, and we had some democratic activities in Afghanistan. We had election, we had the new constitution, so it's done. It's not done. You could see the problem in, Af in Pakistan right now, and also in Afghanistan, and I believe most probably that it was enough pressure on the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, which is very mountainous in area, and the Taliban-style people has a lot of uh, possibility over there because they have bankers, they have tunnels, they have, um, I don't know, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, facilities over there. They built the, those facilities for them in the past 30 years. So because it is a lot of pressure right now by the Americans and the international community on Pakistan, and also even some military activities, bombing and firing missiles uh, on those areas. So they try to uh, attract the attention to Bombay. So the attack in Bombay most probably was planned in order to attract the attention to this that's part of the world. And of course, the reason is Kashmir. The reason is that the problem in Kashmir between India and, and Pakistan. And unless we look at the whole region carefully, we cannot really solve the problem. And not between Pakistan, Afghanistan, and India, but we should not forget Iran and, and also the, the Iraq problem. But we were really afraid that if if uh, there was discussion two, two, three years ago that they were going to attack Iran, if they really made that mistake, then the whole region would have been out of, out of control. And it's still a cautious that they should not go and act militarily on Iran. Because they, they will not be able to control the area. And it's, it is already out of control. But I hope that it will be uh, with the new administration, they will really look carefully to the issue and really look carefully to the whole region, to the whole problem in the region, 
not only by increasing the, the soldiers in Afghanistan. And you said to me yesterday it's, uh, that it's India, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Kashmir, but you also, and Iran and Iraq, but you also said uh, the Middle East and uh, Israel and Palestine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I wonder, you know, obviously another comment that we heard today um, from uh, Mort Halperin, a very senior um, US uh, uh, public servant who served in various administrations, said to us today that it's very important that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, this is another very, very important point of contention between the United States and much of the world. Uh, President Carter, how important do you think that will be in also, uh, how important would it be for President Obama to really take that on and also with what's, what Sima has said about the South Asia uh, region to solve those problems they are difficult, but our uh, president-elect has said he can walk and chew gum at the same time, so. Well, um, when I was elected president many, many years ago, um, there had been four wars between Israel and the Arabs in the previous 25 years, with thousands of people killed and with the existence of Israel endangered and with Arab oil boycotts against the United States, and no prospect of comprehensive peace. <clears throat> so the key, I thought, at that time, was to begin working on the peace process at the, during the first year of my administration, <coughs> which I did. And we've had very few efforts since then to bring a comprehensive peace to that region. <coughs> Excuse me, Ron. I think that President Bill Clinton and even um, President George W. Bush in the last years of their terms have made some moves that were important. And I've been very uh, pleased to hear future President Obama say that he began working on the Middle East peace process uh, at the beginning of his administration, not the end of it. But I don't think there's any single issue that arouses more animosity and distrust toward the United States throughout the Islamic world uh -huh. <coughs> than the persecution of the Palestinians and the lack of United States leadership in trying to take a balanced and very aggressive and persistent and determined role in bringing peace. Because the fact is that the majority of Israelis have always been favor, in favor of peace, relinquishing their control over the West Bank in return for peace. Every Arab country on earth, 22 of them, have consistently said they will support Israel and defend Israel's right to exist and live in peace and have full diplomatic relations with Israel and full trade relations with Israel, <coughs> as they do with each other, if Israel would withdraw from the West Bank. And they've also added a caveat that I think is very important, and that is with some modifications of the pre-1967 lines that would permit half the Israeli settlers to stay in the West Bank, those living nearest to uh, Jerusalem. So the opportunities for peace, I think, are there. And uh, I think this would be accepted by the vast majority of Israelis, <coughs> of Palestinians, 
and supported fully by the Lebanese, the Jordanians, mm -hmm. the Syrians, uh, and the Egyptians. Um, there have been talks going on uh, between Israel and Syria concerning the Golan Heights, sponsored not by the United States, but by Turkey. And when the United States found out about it, they objected very strongly to the peace talks. And uh, the last time I was with President Assad in April, a, a young president that I've known since he was a college student, he said that they were going to stop attempting peace uh, with Israel until there was a new president in the White House. They would give support because there's no way that they can consummate a peace agreement just sponsored by Turkey. The United States has got to be involved and supportive. So I think the opportunities for great progress uh, in the Middle East are there. I've written another book about it, the title of which won't be nearly as controversial as my last one. Uh, and it will be published about a week after the new president takes office. And so uh, the title of it is, We Can Bring Peace to the Holy Land, a plan that will work. I was going to say, yes, we can, bring, but my wife taught me out of it. And so... I remove the yes, but the title is, We Can Bring Peace to the Holy Land. And I don't have any doubt that the title is, uh, is accurate. So that's good news. We'll have closed Guantanamo. We'll have uh, <laughs> uh, 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 made it right with all of the detainees. We will uh, prohibit torture forever. We will um, do all of these things. We will make peace in the Middle East. We will pay attention prop to the, appropriately to Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and Kashmir. Um, we will get Ayman Nur out of prison, have free elections in Egypt. It sounds like a very good first year for the Obama administration. That brings up a very important point. Yes, please. Uh, I told a group assembled in this same room um, yesterday that we can't be overconfident about the new president. Uh, no matter what his motivations are, he's going to face a hornet's nest of opposition in reversing what has been decided by many people in this country and supported, as Larry pointed out a while ago. There's been some, there have been some very narrow votes, for instance, on the concept of habeas corpus, the Congress has voted to abolish habeas corpus. And it was only the Supreme Court of the United States that reversed them. Obama's got to face that narrowly divided Congress on that issue. There's going to be a lot of uh, members of Congress and members of uh, the public in America who believe that torture is justified when the threat of uh, terrorism still exists. There are going to be a lot of Americans who are not going to want to see the new president take a balanced position between Israel and the Palestinians. There are going to be a lot of uh, Americans who are not going to see the United States play a full and positive role uh, in the United Nations. And there will be a lot of Americans who will not want to see the United States threaten privately to reduce economic and military aid to allies like Egypt. 
And there'd be a lot of Americans who don't want to see the United States promote honest elections and freedom and democracy around the world because people that we don't trust who might be Muslims might be elected. So it's not going to be an easy role for the United States to uh, take, regardless of the identity of our new president. I say that because it's important for all of us to give him our full support and our active and dedicated support in our prayers because I think the um, future of our country and the world hangs in the balance. I don't have any doubt that uh, Barack Obama's motivations are are sincere and compatible with what we said tonight. But we can't take him for granted. And uh, we need to give him our support. Absolutely. We have time for, for just one more comment, and I'm, I'm picking the one to the top that said the Congo in it. Um, because we have and Zimbabwe and Sudan. I wanted to use this question to actually ask our guests to stand up and be recognized who came from Africa. We had, uh, Oluwale Fapahunda from Nigeria. <laughs> Primrose Matabadanzo from Zimbabwe who who flew in here last weekend, I get an email from President Carter said, I want you to bring Primrose from Zimbabwe to come to our conference within the next few days. And uh, thanks to our good uh, uh, consulate in Harare and uh, our great travel and events people here, we got Primrose here and she gave a very moving testimony <clears throat> about the current situation in Zimbabwe. And you met Hassan Shire from Uganda and our, and. Um, this question was, how do you bring peace to the Congo, Sudan, and Zimbabwe without the intervention of a well-armed, robust military force that is ready, willing, and able to use force to protect civilian population and keep order? And if it's okay, I'm going to take this question. If you had asked me to do it, I was going to return it to you. <laughs> Karen has been uh, our key representative of the, of the Carter Center in the Congo. And she's done remarkable work there in protecting human rights and also democracy and also the future economic status of uh, that troubled country. So, Karen, it's in your hands. Uh, too much credit. <coughs> it's, um, yeah, because um, when you take the credit, you also t have to take the blame when things don't go right. Um, this is a great question because, and it's related, and, and I think it, it's a fitting conclusion to our panel because... In the Congo, five and a half million people have perished since 1996. That was after the genocide of Rwanda in 1994. That's the largest number of people lost since the Second World War. That's right. And it's something that the, that the public is not aware of, um, I think. I mean, because I ask people, and for the most part, I find that's true. Um, this question is about a robust peace force. When the United States, when, not if, when the United States regains, reclaims the mantle of leadership on human rights, rejoins the United Nations, takes its seat at the Human Rights Council, 
understands that the Security Council, on which it is only one of five members that has a veto and can use the Security Council to protect human rights, to prevent genocide, when the United States does that, it will be able to do things it hasn't done. In 1996 and 1998, it, the United States, in 1994, we know that the United States government, and this was in the previous administration, the United States government failed and has admitted that it failed to act to prevent the genocide of Rwanda. But what most people don't realize is that they failed again in 1996 and 1998 to prevent the, uh, um, the actors in the region to wreak havoc. And what we now know uh, uh, resulted was the loss of five and a half million lives. Why? Because the mining interests, et cetera, this is the richest plot of land on the earth. Diamonds, coltan, which is in all of your cell phones, uh, as a mineral that is required in electronics. This is very, very important. So what we're talking about here is connected to this. Because when the most powerful nation on the earth reclaims its mantle of leadership, we can fix peacekeeping at the United Nations. We can make sure that those troops at MONUC uh, in the UN mission in the east of Congo are working, they're effective. We can use our diplomatic muscle when we see a genocide coming to knock heads, prevent it, make sure it doesn't happen. It doesn't mean sending troops everywhere. It means using our leadership. Will we have leadership? That's what we need. And that's what this session was about. And that's what our conference was about, was restoring leadership. And I want to thank our panelists and our conference participants and all of you for coming out and participating with us tonight. I just, I just have one more piece of business. The next program in our conversations at the Carter Center series is called Zeroing In on Guinea Worm Disease. On Thursday, Jan January 15th, the Carter Center has led the campaign to eradicate this disease, which is poised to be the first parasitic disease eradicated in history. The program will describe the challenges faced in eliminating the disease and put a human face on our efforts you can RSVP for this event online at cartercenter.org backslash conversations beginning December 22nd. And if you lost your keys, there's a little purple key on it. It's at the volunteer desk. Thank you very much. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center online at cartercenter.org.